Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programs if you follow us on Twitter at DC10 Tonight. I hope you enjoy the programs. In 2013, Oliver Gray wrote and published his first novel, Xander. It tells the epic tale of a little-known American roots musician embarking on his first tour of United Kingdom, a tour that starts off in a blaze of indifference and soon spirals into violence, chaos and ultimately tragedy. Despite its dark nature, Xander has been described as offbeat and captivating, with Gray's forensic exploration of provincial attitudes drawing comparison with both Dickens and Tolstoy. With its dual themes of small-town England and drug-strewn Americana, one commentator described it as a transatlantic archers, but with more violence and swearing. This convincing portrayal of love, crime, and the often turbulent relationship between an artist and promoter is now available for the first time as an audiobook. With me to discuss Sander by Oliver Gray are Oliver Gray, writer of modern language teaching resources and author of Xander. Oliver Gray, concert promoter, freelance music journalist and author of Xander. And Oliver Gray, former pupil of King's School Gloucester, graduate of the University of East Anglia and author of Xander. Oliver, let's start with you. Can you give us some background as to how you got started as a writer? <laughs> Um, I, I did um, actually start as a writer at the age of about 12 when I ran and invented a local newspaper for my village where I grew up. Um, and the village was called Edge and the newspaper was called the Edge Gazette. And uh, it was handwritten. And we took it round and we took it to people's houses and we let them uh, borrow it for uh, 24 hours. And they paid, uh, in those days, it was a shilling a, a read. And they then gave it back. It was actually, when you think about it, incredibly um, ecologically sound concept, wasn't it? Because they read it and then they gave it back and I took it on to someone else. And it was in aid of uh, the Church Roof Restoration Fund. You rented out a newspaper. You had you wrote Indeed. it. That's just extraordinary behaviour. I've never heard of anybody doing that before. <laughs> well, in your case, you just used to give them away, but uh, <laughs> yes, at least you got them back. <laughs> yes, and, and and people were actually prepared to pay for it, uh, but it, it was definitely um, patronising small children doing something good for the community. And did the did the roof get redone? Yeah, eventually. I mean, one of the one of the attractions of it uh, was that um, the vicar was also collecting uh, newspapers to be recycled and uh, the recycling people gave him some money which helped contribute to restoring the roof. But what we discovered as 12-year-olds uh, was that if you went into the shed behind the vicarage where the newspapers were uh, were delivered... <laughs> it sounds like you're operating a random Smith's lyric song genius. <laughs> Um, it was fantastic because somebody, we never know, knew exactly who, was um, depositing girly mags with uh, titles like Parade and uh, full of um, naked women. So on the pretense of going to just check out the Vickers store of uh, recycled newspapers, we'd be in there um, having uh, 
having a look at some uh, illicit uh, skin. Gosh. So, yes. All those strange goings on in, in rural, um, rural wherever it was. Gloucestershire, Rural, rural that's difficult to say, especially after two yeah. cans of lager. Especially rural. after two uh, co-op lagers. Yeah. The thing is that it was in the Cotswolds. Now the Cotswolds is the height of uh, trendiness and uh, people like uh, Lily Allen and Kate Moss live there. Hmm. But then it was the absolute utter back of beyond and... Uh, uh, we could. My father, who was very poor, was able to um, to actually buy an old stable and spend years <laughs> unsuccessfully doing it up. And that's another story in itself. Because when she, when my father eventually sold this, uh, when I was um, in my late teens and went off to university, he actually got less than he'd paid for it in the first place. Oh God! So uh, they they bought a house in the Cotswold and made a loss on it. Oh. And I swear uh, they sold it for £9,000. And uh, when I last saw it advertised, it was a million and a half. Oh, so geez. that goes to show, doesn't it? Times change. None of it, Did, none of it came my way. So when whenabouts was this then? Like, give us a year rather than... Um... You're good at maths. I was born in 1948 yeah. and I was 12. 1960 then? That was it. The beginning of the 60s. Uh, uh, I'm one of those famous people who grew up in the 60s and have had every conceivable advantage. Yeah. Uh, and as I enter my dotage, the whole of civilization seems to be going uh, to hell in a handcart. So uh, by the time I'm gone, uh, everything will have gone back to being crap. But uh, yeah, I do remember the 60s uh, because I didn't do uh, drugs, but uh, it, was a, it was a very, very privileged time to be growing up. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, especially, I mean, yeah, any age where you can make your own newspaper and lend it out to people is a <laughs> is a privileged time isn't it let's face it i mean i have to tell you that it, it is rather a rather a, a tragic story in fact a, a horrible one and, and you, you wouldn't have thought of me as being like a a ruthless uh, entrepreneur but i wasn't the only person involved there was a boy next door called timothy and bless his heart he had very severe learning difficulties and he he he, he spoke in a very strange way and he couldn't write properly but the idea was that we wrote this paper together, but then he couldn't write. So I wrote the entire thing. And then he uh, was given by me uh, something called the Children's Gazette, which was the children's supplement, which he then wrote in his very, um, what's the word, very sort of clear, unambiguous uh, and large handwriting, which was fine because the children could then yeah. read it allegedly but basically i just staged a coup after the first edition and uh and appointed him business manager but basically what that meant was poor bugger had to go around all the houses giving the paper out and then collecting it back in and collecting the shillings whereas i sat at home in my literary garret um creating the 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 the, the content for the publication and then by the time we i think there was only about five issues over the course of a year or so and uh, the vinyl issue, I've got, I've got them all in the shed, as you know, I've got everything in my shed, um, was, uh, it contained about four different, it was the time when the Sunday Times and the Observers just started having colour magazines and art supplements and sports extras and what have you. Yeah. So it was about 120 pages, the last one. Foolish, we, we never increased the price because we should have really. That's insane. Yeah, the Edge Gazette. I I don't know. It, it's probably um, it, it, it's worthy of a Wikipedia page, really, isn't it? Do you own? You should get edgegazette.com or .co.uk <laughs> as well. 
and like digitize the whole thing because i mean it's the same it's the same as lending it in a way isn't it you know i'm sh- i'm sure there's an edge community facebook page now richard it'll all be different yeah you should get on that and like yeah bombard them with um with pages from the final edition <laughs> maybe the news won't be uh, won't be that up to date will it and then send tim round to collect everybody's internets at the end of the day Do you know something. i often wonder if i often wonder if tim is alive it's funny when you, at my age you start sort of thinking you think back to people uh that you grew up with and of course there's a very good chance that they're not alive isn't there uh, and you you wonder what became of them and it's a very frustrating thing when you when you'd love to know what became of certain people and you never will find out unless they happen to be on Facebook and have not changed their name, which is, you know, people of my age aren't on social media. So it's very... Uh, or or unless like Tim, who's standing outside your window with a hammer. <laughs> Actually, he was the ultimate geek. So probably he became an internet supremo. Very likely, in fact. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, because he couldn't write very well, but I bet he could hammer a keyboard all right. Anyway, so you had you had your own newspaper that you lent to people. Yes. Um, and did you just then carry on writing? What look at school? Were you were you kind of top yes, of the class in? I was in what what would it have been called? In like English, English. language or just English? Yeah, English. Yeah. There was a school magazine, and each that came out each term, and each term one of my masterpieces would be in it. <laughs> I. Yeah, I <laughs> I wrote essays oh, about uh, unlikely and obscure. Uh, well, you started it with all that bollocks in your introduction, so <laughs> it's gone to my head. <laughs> what did you call me? An internationally renowned writer on the bar with Dickens, was it? Dickens and Tolstoy. Well, there we go. So shut your face. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, the, the beginning of my actual writing career. By the way, I have never made it a penny out of my writing other than the educational writing, which I'll, I'll talk about probably in a minute. Mm. Uh, so I'm not a professional writer at all. I'm just a, a bloke who likes to write things and then uh, is completely deluded into thinking that anybody else might want to read them. So I'll put up um, uh, Facebook notes. There's this notes section, which I think you once drew to my attention, or I wouldn't have known it existed, where you can write lengthy essays about stuff. And uh, and then sit and watch as uh, a total of about three people read this thing that's taken you a week to write. But uh, I, I enjoy writing, Rich. I, I've always loved it. And uh, as you know, I've been a, a, a very down market, poor, underappreciated uh, music writer for 50 odd years. Um, but my actual career, if you want to call it that, did, did actually start. And, it, and this was a career when I was in Germany who... Uh, I was very lucky to be working in a school where the deputy head uh, was a guy who wrote English language textbooks. And he approached me one day after he got to know me and sort of, I think, you know, established that I was trustworthy. Mm. And he said, look, I've got this new book coming out and I'd like you to to co-write it with me. And the reason that, for that was, it was quite clever, actually, in his part, was that he figured that if he had an English person's name on the front cover ah. it would make it look authentic, more authentically english right got you yeah uh and this book was uh called any germans listening which i doubt there are any whatsoever but they might easily have used it when they were at school it was a, it was a book called how to avoid mistakes and the essence of it was that anybody 
learning a particular language will make a certain type of mistake based on what's called interference from their own language. So that if you're a typical English person trying to speak German, there are certain words that you're likely to use wrong right. and vice versa. Yeah, it makes and sense. And you know how the Germans uh, typically they will speak like that when they are speaking English because there are certain pronunciations. And, you know, and I'm, Lord help me, I am not stereotyping because it applies to everybody trying to speak another language. Yeah, absolutely. Other of than course, their native it, tongue. it does completely. Yeah. And, you know, so the French, the French gentleman will tend to speak a bit like that. And that's it. But also there are certain grammatical things that they will tend to get wrong. Yeah. And uh, so the idea was to home in on these typical mistakes that people would make and find that if you could try and eliminate those mistakes, their standard would go up dramatically because actually they're probably any errors they make are just boiling down to quite a small number of errors. Yeah. So he wrote this book and it consisted of um, a lot of information about the things that they were likely to get wrong and a lot of tips for how to get them right and a lot of practice. And it was a big success. He was already quite well known when I arrived at that school where I was teaching in, uh, in, in Bremen in North Germany. Yeah. And uh, because it was successful, the publisher had asked him to do another one and for a slightly lower level and with a slightly adjusted title. And the title was uh, avoiding mistakes. Ah, I thought it was going to be a sequel called How to Avoid More Mistakes. <laughs> that would have probably been better, but uh, I think we'd used up all the mistakes. Yeah. So now we had to find another. Uh, basically, it was a cash-in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he thought that uh, having my name on the cover. And true enough, of course, it was a big success. Ah. And, um, but I was slightly let down because he didn't actually pay me for it. And uh, he said uh, at one time, uh, look, uh, I know I haven't paid you for this, but I'll make it worth your while and I'll make sure you gain some benefit from it. And then uh, at the end of uh, a, a particular term, when this book came out, he came to me and he gave me a bottle of whiskey. Now, I you don't, don't drink. like whiskey. No. no, I absolutely can't stand any form of whiskey. Hmm. But he seemed to be thinking, assuming, you know, he knew that I was largely Scottish and therefore uh, uh, assumed that I would like whiskey. So I thought, oh, Christ, this is it. All he's done is he's given me this bottle of whiskey for all that work. Yeah. But actually, I'm telling a lie because he um, paid me by putting in a good word for me with the publisher. Ah. And so the publisher then came to me and said, would you uh, now do a series of workbooks uh, for this uh, practice avoiding, uh, sorry, for this avoiding mistakes book? Yeah. And your workbooks are going to be called practice avoiding mistakes. And will you write these? And of course, because his book was a success and because uh, writing a practice book is even better because people then use it and then have to buy it again the following year. Yeah because they've used the, uh, the first one. Yeah. Uh, any kind of um, practice books are normally quite good for sales, which is something I've exploited shamelessly for the rest of my uh, writing career for uh, education. So anyway, that was the end of that. I, I wrote uh, Practice Avoiding Mistakes. It became, in educational publishing terms in Germany, a hit. Mm. Sold a load of copies. Funnily enough, it still sells to this day, and it was first written in 1980. Uh, 
so that you know that was that was the start and then without going into any more detail uh rich uh all the time i was then back in england uh came back in 76 and fairly soon again another complete fluke and another big favor that somebody did me was there was um a teacher at henry beaufort school called julian taylor who wrote uh, a very successful book for longman which was a uk publisher at the time um for teaching what was then cse french right and uh she didn't speak german and her publisher oh. just like in before came to her and said look this has been a big success will you please write a german version and she couldn't hmm. so she then came to me and said look shall we collaborate i'll tell you what the content will be you translate it all into german and make it work in german yeah which we duly did and in this case it was a much fairer setup i'm pretty sure that she was on five percent and i was on five percent i can't be certain my memory about that hmm. and then we created this book called Zagmar, which i probably used when i was teaching you that if you yeah did. that rings bells <laughs> that rings bells definitely which went through uh three editions and it's only gone out of print in the last uh probably about, probably about 10 years ago it finally went out of print so that was that and then because that was a success i was then in with publishers yeah and uh so over the course of my uh teaching life and then way afterwards and up until well even now i i worked on some two projects last year working for all the various educational publishers writing french and german teaching books for schools are you are you in that game only as popular as your last book if, does that make sense what i'm trying to say is it does how to avoid mistakes mm. still hold weight i mean does your the fact that your career goes all the uh, way back to that in writing language stuff i i i i doubt it actually i mean it's uh it, it's all a matter of availability you know they'll they'll contact me and they'll say look we need this uh, thing to be brought out by next september are you available can you do it and then you sign a contract and then then you're lumbered <laughs> yeah right and you have to go into eastleigh library for uh, <laughs> for six months to do it for six months which is fine the eastleigh library is where uh is, is my office um because if i'm at home i am distracted by various things like bbc5 live um or anything you look around and you see oh there's something in the garden that needs to be looked at oh, oh God, I <laughs> that's done that that's hoover. tim with the hammer again <laughs> yeah exactly so um if you go to the library i mean i can talk for half an hour and i won't uh, about the uh, amusing things that happen in the in libraries but uh basically you're stuck there and you're not allowed to talk or theoretically you're not allowed to and um and so you you can just sit and concentrate and get things done um, but then uh, you uh, were also involved in my first foray into non-educational writing, which is when I wrote that uh, strange memoir called Volume, for which you have so far done, designed three front covers. Three Can front you remember covers. all of them? Yeah, the first one was a photograph I took of John sitting at a mixing desk. This, really? Yeah, yeah, the first ever one. It's one of my first bits of graphic design. It's really, really not very good. Is it in, is it intelligible as <clears throat> being John? Because I just I remember it as just like, like a sort of big big pink, um, surreal splash. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that recognisable. 
Blimey, I'll have to have a look at it. It's, um, I think it's, yeah, from a photograph that was, yeah, taken when we recorded Don't Ask Me, weirdly enough. Um, the song, Don't Ask Me. Yes. Um, and yeah, because I've got a photograph of you, me and John from that recording session. And John's wearing this green shirt and he's wearing that green shirt on that first front cover of volume. Well, if I wasn't uh, if I wasn't chained to a microphone, I would leap across the room and snatch it from the shelves and have another look at it because uh, I never realised that. Yeah, and the second one is photograph of Cave uh, singing into a microphone. In fact, it's a, a, a bird's eye view. Dan is tonsils. Yeah, isn't it? photograph by uh, John McIntosh, and the third one is John Murray's pedal board. <laughs> A thing of uh, enormous size and beauty. Yeah. I mean, it's not swerve driver levels, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that led on to uh, various other books. A travel book, which is the nearest I've come to having uh, what you might call mainstream success in that it got sort of national reviews. And uh, it was actually number one in Waterstones magazine's travel book chart. But whether that actually means anything i've got no idea but it's it's uh, part of that is because you know the travel book genre is a hugely popular one and so people pay more attention and if you write a travel book you've got more chance of of getting it noticed more than a book about being obsessed with rock and roll i did think that was the case but i've just recently written a travel book and it's been a complete flop so i think as usual it's a matter of just getting the right little breaks and in that particular case i got two breaks uh really fluky ones one was uh that fee glover uh, had just been interviewed by me and she was the guest critic in the waterstones magazine that month oh yes and i remember when this. i interviewed her i gave her a copy and she liked it and so she uh bigged it up in that magazine which may have moved it up the charts a bit the other one was uh, something that nearly caused me to have um altitude sickness was i was in a flight on the way to it must have been america i guess and i looked in the british airways magazine and there simon calder who probably is the most respected travel journalist Absolutely. in the uk yeah, of course ha had had done a sort of article about uh enjoyable travel books and lo and behold Vacation, which was the name of this uh, volume of this book, yeah. <laughs> um, was up there uh, and getting a very good uh, review, from, review from Simon. So those things are, are, are very influential and they were just uh, two flukes that came at the same time. I thought it would mean the beginning of a stellar career, but it, uh, but it didn't. But how was, um, how was sales for those? I mean, I don't know what books sell. I've got no idea. All right. I, mean, I don't know what records well, sell. I don't know what anything sells. It, no. Well, nowadays... Uh, records don't really sell at all because they don't sort of exist as such, do they? They're, they're, and they're all incredibly complicated algorithms are are used to to make the charts, hmm. uh, which don't have any resemblance to people going into record shops and buying records. Um, with books, uh, none of my books have been what I would call or what anybody would call a mainstream success at all. So over the years, volume had uh well to date it's had five different 
editions. Yeah. Uh, and that has been uh, on the basis of selling out a print run. And typically print run tends to be around about a thousand. Right. So I think if you add up all the copies of volume that have ever been sold in the world, it's probably about 5,000. And weren't you saying I that think... was 25 years ago or something? Well, yeah, so, uh, well, over the course of 25 years. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's not many. Uh, it may, we could say that it's probably quite a, uh, a niche topic, isn't it? Uh, whereas I would imagine if you added up all the copies of Vacation that have sold, it might be around about double that because the travel book is, is less niche. But also, I mean, maybe not so much back then, but now reading is probably a bit of a niche activity as well. There's so much, so many other distractions. That, that... I think so. People sitting down and reading books. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you uh, know better than me that we've uh, just been in the process of trying to do an audio book of uh, the novel I wrote. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be absolutely intrigued to see whether people, we're not buying because I don't think we're going to charge for it, but people acquire audio books. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought, for me, uh, I can sit down and read a book. I can go to bed and read a book. Mm. Um, but the thought of actually being committed to sitting with earphones for hours on end, listening to someone read to me, I don't find that appealing at all. But having said that, my daughter is a podcast freak and um, and listens all, all day, every day to podcasts. So. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. If you get into it, you... Sounds so stupid to say. If you get into it, you get into it, and it just becomes part of your norm. Like when you're going out for a walk, you yeah, you listen to a podcast. Uh, going back to what you were just saying there, just for clarity, uh, yeah, Oliver's to anybody listening, Oliver's novel Xander. Oliver has read the whole thing, all seventeen chapters. And if you go to dc10tonight.com slash Xander, you'll find all the details there. And yeah, it's a free download available on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, probably anywhere else that you usually get your stuff. But yeah, 17 different, um, 17 different chapters, 17 different downloads, but all under the one thing. <laughs> and I've just completely kiboshed it by saying, why would anybody want to listen to anything like that? <laughs> So Oliver Zander is your, that's your first novel. So you'd written these nonfiction books. Why did you, why did you wake up one morning and go, I need to write a novel? Which of the three Olivers are you asking this question All to? All three Olivers. Okay. So I'll do it. Is there, is there a, th a three version of stereo? Uh, trerio. Trerio. Yeah. Trerio. Yes. Uh, yes okay. Yeah, here, trerio, here comes the response in Trerio. Um, well, everybody has one novel in them, don't they? Yes. That's what they but, say. Yeah, but for most people, that's exactly where it should stay. Yes, but, but one of the sort of odd things about my rather strange personality is that if I decide to do something, I always do it. Uh, the pl plague of my life has been so many people in my life who say they're going to do things and then don't. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm the opposite. And therefore, even if all sense dictates that it's a ridiculously stupid thing to do and pointless. If I decide to do whatever it happens to be, I will do it. Um, and um, people would say to me, to be fair, that people quite enjoyed the style of the other books. And so they would say to me, why haven't you written a novel? Hmm. And uh, the only 
I don't really read much in the way of novels, but I was in the process of reading some absolutely wonderful uh, crime novels set in Portsmouth by a writer called Graham Hurley. And because I know Portsmouth reasonably well, because I used to go up and down to gigs all the time, uh, what he does is he sets his completely fictional tales in a 100% authentic uh, setting. Yeah. And so I was enjoying them very much. And I found it really easy to relate to the stories because I could really see these stories actually happening yeah. in the places that I knew so well. Mm. And uh, around about that time, now, I remember, I can actually tell you and describe the exact situation. It was the day that Chuck Prophet and the Mission Express were playing in Winchester, and you and I had set up a book reading for Willie Vlautin in the University of Winchester. Oh, yeah. Hall. Yeah. The very same hall where Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers played in 1977. Uh, and it was a bit of a, an odd situation. I found some pictures the other day of you serving up the large uh, al fresco picnic that you'd bought from uh, maybe even from the carp um, <laughs> and, and served up to all of them. But in this hall were maybe 20 people max. And we were treated to this extraordinarily wonderful reading by Willie, uh, who, if anybody's listening and don't know him, he's a, 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 a very, very brilliant American novelist. And uh, with a guy called Paul Brainerd on pedal steel guitar mm. doing some uh, sounds in the background to accompany the stories. And this thing just totally, utterly captivated me. And that uh, next morning, they were just about to set off when they realized that the van had broken down. Oh, and there was something. I remember that day. Yeah. It was a hell of a day. Yeah. And there was something severely wrong with the wheel bearings or something such that they could not contemplate going on a motorway and driving to wherever they were going to next, Leicester or whatever. Yeah. So we found ourselves driving. It was actually just Carsten, the driver, and me. And Willie said, could he come along as well? And we set off and we drove to uh, Fairham, which was the nearest place which had this particular part and was in a position to repair the van. And while they were doing it, which took three hours, Willie and I spent that time walking round the um, shopping centre, which was there, at, uh, at, not Sedgensworth, but Fairham, whatever shopping centre, yeah. going in and out of places like Staples and places like that. And talking, just talking, uh, 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 and that's how we got to know each other. And uh, I was asking him about his novels because he famously does huge amounts of research. Mm. Um, like, for example, his last book, Don't Skip Out on Me, was about boxing. And he knew virtually nothing about boxing, but uh, spent a year at least researching all about this particular uh, subculture. And I said, look, I've been thinking I'd like to try and write a novel, but I just don't know what to write about. I don't, I don't have anything that I know about. And he said, well, either you do the research or you write about something that you know about. So I thought, okay, so what do I know about? I know about teaching languages. Mm. That's not very interesting. Although I, I know that you have said to me in the past that I ought to write a novel about education, but 
it, to be honest with you, I've forgotten so much that I, I, I don't think I can do it anymore. And education has changed so much. Yeah. Or the only other thing I know about is gig promotion. Hmm. So that sowed the seed in my mind. Uh, I do know about that. So if I set my novel about that, I'm so lazy. I'm so fucking lazy. <laughs> I couldn't be asked to do research. And this is why I'm never going to write a second novel because I, I've exhausted my entire supply of things I know about. Yeah. And so in order to write a second one, I'd have to research and find out about something else. And I literally cannot be bothered. <laughs> uh, and so, <laughs> and so I've shot me novelist bolt yeah. by writing a book about the only thing I know about. Does that make any kind of sense to you? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. I mean, you can't really, yeah, it's not, it's not really a subject that you could keep going, uh, uh, you know. No, I couldn't write a sequel. Not, you, no, you couldn't. No, no. no. Um, I, I did think about it, but, uh, you know, that it's definitely, uh, it's definitely past its, uh, past its sell by date from that point of view. Anyway, so so there I was. And then the other thing I thought, well, okay, so what kind of books do I read? Uh, I virtually only read crime novels, but I don't like, uh, I'm such a sensitive uh, sort of little twee little fairy type person. And I, I don't like violence. And nearly all crime novels are full of graphic descriptions of, well, it tends to be rapes and people having their eyeballs gouged out and stuff like that. And I don't like anything like that. So if it was going to be a, a novel, a crime novel, it had to be a rather gentle one. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I like the idea of doing a love story. So the other thing was, I don't want to, <laughs> in case there's anybody in the whole world who actually wants to listen to the, uh, to the audio book, <laughs> I don't want to tell you the plot, but yeah, certain things, no, certain, certain things are, are important. Chapter two is like a small uh, biography of a musician. Yeah. And the original idea I had was to make the whole book a biography, because I read music biographies. Yeah. So if I go out and I read the music biography of, or autobiography, for example, of Pete Townsend or Keith Richards or Neil Young or whoever it happens to be, um, that makes sense because that's a famous person and I'm interested in their lives and other people will go out and buy those books. But I, I actually wrote this chapter as being kind of part of my original idea to write a full length biography of somebody who never existed. That would be cool. Well, it wouldn't be Richard because by the time I'd written it, I realized nobody is going to buy a biography of somebody that they'd never heard of. Nobody at all because I'm interested in Keith Richards' drug excesses and Pete Downsend's, you know, potentially being arrested for unspeakable things or certainly, you know, Neil Young and uh, all his involvement yeah, in political causes and what have yeah, you. Maybe but some... if I say this is a book about John Smith, who had a long and successful career in the music business, nobody's going to buy it. I suppose that only works, doesn't it? Like with things like, I mean, in a film you know, way spinal tap, it only works if it's kind of played for laughs, doesn't it? Yes. Um, because... And I, I, suppose, I could have done a, I suppose a, the thing a is, to make a comedy, but... With rock and roll, yeah. like the lifestyles of those rock and rollers that you've just mentioned, the lifestyles and the and the lives that they've lived are so extraordinary. It's not like it would be difficult to 
make up that fictional rock star and top it. Yes, and exactly, certainly. And some, for someone like Keith, you know, it, it, yeah. it, if you wrote that story and it wasn't about uh, somebody that actually existed, people say, well, it's ridiculous. Nobody could ever live life like that. Yeah. <laughs> he would have died 20 years ago. But So uh, anyway, so anyway, uh, uh, the other thing is I didn't have any kind of concept. I had no technique. I just went into Eastleigh Library every day for nearly six months and I just wrote longhand anything that came into my head about uh, how the plot was developing. Now, of course, when you read interviews with the novelists, they oh my God, the, res the research and the planning that goes into it. And they've got uh, spreadsheets and, yeah. you know, timelines and Christ knows what else. And I, as I said before, I'm too lazy to do anything like that. <laughs> so I just, I just wrote uh, the story as it came into my head. And as it toddled along, it sort of developed. And then an obvious conclusion came that uh, wasn't obvious, if I can say that. Yeah. So yeah. The, 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 there's an unexpected development which makes it worth p pursuing. But chapter two is the problem chapter because you it, the whole story doesn't work if you don't know about the extremely detailed information about the main guy's life. Well, in that... So the chapter two, which is the hugely long uncut style article about his life, um, has to be read, but you could possibly uh, fall asleep reading it if you're not interested in rock music. Well, in that case, can we point... Am I right in thinking that that chapter is on your website, on the Xander page? Or some of it? Uh, I believe it is. I can't remember whether I put that chapter or chapter one. No, I think so it's. I, I think it's that one. I think it's that. I think it's chapter two. So if, yeah, if anybody goes to OliverGray.com dot com and finds the Xander page, then that chapter is there. If you <laughs> so they could read that before listening to the whole. Yes, enchilada. they're 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 certainly uh, they're certainly welcome to read it, and uh, I'd like to inform them that all the other chapters are much more exciting. <laughs>